Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 23 of Yogaland. On today's episode, Jason, my husband Jason Crandall, answers your questions. We asked for some questions on Instagram and on Facebook. You can follow either of us there if you want to submit questions the next time. And we got a bunch of great questions. So we're going to do two episodes. And today's episode is going to focus on the anatomy questions. So if you like to talk about external rotation and dorsiflexion and you like to think about all of these precise details in your body as you're learning your practice and learning about yourself This is a great episode for you. I also want to take a moment and thank those of you who left me reviews on iTunes this past week. I've gotten four or five star reviews and it totally makes my day. I read them over and over again. So thank you to Rebecca J, O Yoga, Still Life, and my favorite review name of all times. It's in all caps. I like yellowfin tuna. You know who you are. If you feel so moved to leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Apparently, it improves your ranking in the iTunes store and more people can find the podcast. So thanks so much for listening. Hi, Jason. Hello. So I'm really excited because we put out a social media call for questions for Uh you to answer. Uh And we got some really good questions and and, and a lot of responses. I'm going to start with some anatomy questions. Sure. The first question is from Sophie Martell. Hi, Sophie. She asks, if you happen to talk about anatomy cues and why we use them, I have one. Why? She put a lot of whys on that. Uh Uh-oh. Do we dorsiflex the ankle? (laughs) Oh, man. During poses like recline pigeon. Okay. We've had some PT debate over the answer, but would love to get a little insight from you guys. So first, let's explain what she means. Okay. So there is a dorsal side, which is the top of the foot. And there's a plantar side, which is the bottom of the foot. And to dorsiflex the foot or the ankle joint is to bring the top of the foot towards the front of the shin bone. Most people, when they think flex their foot, As opposed to point their foot, it's dorsiflexion. Okay. I always get them confused. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to point the foot is to plantar flex. To dorsiflex is to flex the foot. That Mm. makes sense? Yes. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to not talk about the language of flexion flexion in general. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So just think about it. Think about pointing the foot and flexing the foot or pointing the ankle and flexing the ankle. Yes. We're talking about flexing. Mm Mm-hmm. Got it? Yes. Okay. So why do it in poses like... like recline pigeon. Recline pigeon. So we'll tend to... I'm just going to stay with flex. We'll tend to flex the foot or plan to uh, dorsiflex the foot. When we are doing postures where we externally rotate the hip joint and bend the knee. So pigeon pose, ankle to knee pose, padmasana. Arda Padmasana, ankle to knee pose. Okay, now, the first thing is, there's probably a lot of situations where not doing that is fine. Mm-hmm. Is So I think that you want to experiment a little bit with keeping the foot relaxed, flexing the foot, or pointing the foot. But we tend to default to dorsiflexion because that tends to help maintain rotational integrity. 
between the shin bone and the thigh bone. Okay, so it's sort of to step up, to step back. When your leg is completely straight, if everyone lays on their back or whatever, and they straighten one leg up towards the ceiling, and they rotate the thigh out, and they rotate the thigh in. When the knee is straight, and you rotate the thigh bone, the shin bone and the thigh bone rotate together. Mm -hmm. There's no individuated lateral motion or rotation at the knee joint when the leg is straight Mm -hmm. and you rotate the leg. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, unless you're like a Lego person. Well, even a Lego person, that wouldn't matter. You might be able to twist the shin. Anyway, okay. Nope, not when it's straight. Okay. But as soon as there's some bend to the knee, any amount of bend to the knee, then you unlock that inherent rotational integrity. Okay, so when you bend the knee even a little bit, the thigh bone and the shin bone have the potential to rotate slightly differently. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's an important adaptive function. The mm-hmm. knee has to have a little bit of rotational motion, mm-hmm. a tiny bit of rotational motion. So when you bend the knee and you're doing a pose like ankle to knee or uh, reclined ankle to knee, like she brought up, when you bend the knee, the knee and the thigh have the potential to not rotate the same amount. Mm -hmm. Flexing the foot, dorsiflexing the foot, helps engage the muscular continuity and the fascial sheath that goes up the leg, the sheaths that go up the leg. So long story short, flexing the foot for most people helps make the knee more stable. Right, because we missed one little connecting the dots part. Okay. So if the the thigh bone... Do you think the viewers are still listening? And the shin bone... <laughs> or well, the listeners are still listening? This is an experiment, okay. everyone. We're, we're doing an experimental episode where we talk anatomy with no images. <laughs> yeah. It's a fabulous idea. But actually, we may be able to do some kind I, of images or yeah. some short video or got something. It. We'll figure it out. Okay, just to back up a moment. If you bend the knee, you're on your back. You straighten your leg up to the sky. Yes. You bend your knee to bring it into, and you you know externally rotate the hip to bring your leg into reclined pigeon. Yes. What you said was when you bend the knee, there's an opportunity for the shin and the thigh to rotate a little bit differently. And yes. that possibility can put pressure on the knee. Yeah, specifically what that does is the most likely scenario is that when the thigh bone and the shin bone, they're probably doing the same rotation, but different degrees of the same rotation. The, the, the bottom line is that the knee becomes slightly less stable. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, the medial side of the knee, so the inside of the knee, mm-hmm. it can get squished, can get squeezed, mm-hmm. can get crushed. Mm-hmm. So the, the structure that's most at risk is the medial cartilage. The, some of the medial... Which is called the meniscus. Yes, right? the medial meniscus. Like one thing yeah. I remember. And those medial ligaments can also get a little bit squished. The other thing that can happen is the tendons and muscles on the outside of the knee can get a little overstretched. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's just good due diligence. It, it, by flexing the foot, you bring a little bit more stability. So when she knee. says, I want to just kind of take it a step further. When Sophie says, we've had some PT debate about this. Yeah. Have you heard any debate about this? No. Like, the only debate probably is that there's never a one size 
everything fits all solution for everyone in all situations. Like for some people, flexing the foot's not going to be enough. It's not going to be significant statistic. For some people, flexing the foot is still not going to be enough to create comfort at the knee joint in external rotation and flexion of the hip joint. So my guess is that the the disagreement is whether or not the flexion of the foot is actually effective, mm-hmm. not whether or not it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to experiment a little bit. Okay. Yeah. to our next question. Let's go. I'm going to stick with the anatomy theme. Go for it. Because if people are still tuned in, that means they're geeky enough and into the anatomy that this is cool. Or they've just spaced out. And if they've spaced out, they can listen to the next episode. It's fine. Okay. This is from Pamela Salas. Hi, Pamela. I would like to know your opinion about a subject I've seen lately. I have opinions. That is, (laughs) (laughs) that is in quotes, stop pulling shoulder blades down. I would like to understand better why this is a bad cue and what is the correct action to do instead i know this is a roller complicated this is complicated but we can we can actually make it pretty simple so pulling the shoulder blades down in postures where you are not elevating the arms above 90 degrees it's probably fine it can actually be really beneficial so everything changes what the the cueing for the shoulder, the cueing for the shoulder blades changes when the arms elevate above 90 degrees. So when the arms come up overhead or the arms come above the line of the shoulder, that's where the cue draw the shoulder blades down is, um, how do I phrase it most correctly? It is an incomplete and inaccurate description. Because what happens, okay, let's let's step back and say the shoulder blades are not elevating. So you're doing locust pose where you're reaching the arms down along behind you. Or you're doing warrior two, or you're doing triangle pose, or you're doing side plank, or you're doing cobra. Any of these poses where you are not elevating the arms above 90 degrees, it may be a fine instruction to draw the shoulder blades down. The value of the instruction to bring the shoulder blades down in these situations that I just discussed is that one of the places most of us are weakest is the muscles that line the inner border and the bottom border of the shoulder blades. Like that's just an area, uh, more medial and lower trapeziums. Okay. Okay? That's a place that we're chronically weak. Mm -hmm. So people tend to be chronically tight in the upper fibers of their traps, chronically tight. Don't give me that look. What? You just looked at the upper fibers of my traps. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You worked that out. Okay, anyways. um, Okay, so people tend to be chronically tight in the upper fibers of their traps, chronically tight in the front of the shoulders and chest, and chronically weak in the muscles that connect to the bottom of the shoulder blades, so the medial and the lower 
trapeziums, Mm -hmm. okay? So when we're told to draw the shoulder blades down when the arms are not elevating, that might help, may help, release tension in the upper parts of the shoulder and strengthen the muscles that connect to the bottom of the shoulder blade. Make sense? Yes. Okay, so there's a situation where that is a relevant instruction and a healthy instruction. Everything changes when the arms elevate above 90 degrees. And the reason that everything changes and gets really complicated is because when the arms elevate above 90 degrees, the shoulder blades have to rotate. And when the shoulder blades rotate, the outer border of the shoulder blade is elevating. It has to elevate. It has to elevate. The inner border of the shoulder blade is actually descending slightly, but but r- describing rotation and visualizing rotation is really hard. Yeah. But if everyone listening puts their hand in front of their face and looks at the back of the take the the right hand in front of your face and look at the back of your hand. Okay. And then rotate the hand so that the outside of the hand and the outside of the wrist raise up and the thumb and the index finger start to turn down. Does that make sense? Yes. So part of your hand is elevating, right? The outer border of the hand and wrist are elevating. The pinky side. Yeah, the pinky side is elevating. The thumb is descending, Mm -hmm. okay? You can stop doing that. So when the scapula rotates, the outer border is raising and it has to raise. And the problem with the instruction, pull your shoulder blades down when the arms are overhead, is that that tends to fire the muscles on the outer border of the shoulder blade. That tends to make the shoulder blade not rotate, and it has to rotate. It tends to make the shoulder blade not rotate, and that creates, one, that makes you work against the natural rhythm of the shoulders. People can also Google glenohumeral rhythm. And you'll find slides, you'll find videos of this. I mean, it's like super nerdy. It's not as entertaining as like a cat video or something like that, but it's going to help you visualize this. So when you quote unquote, pull the shoulder blades down when the arms are elevating, you'll tend to pull the wrong part down. You'll tend to pull the outer, outer border of the shoulder down. blade down by firing your lats. So are you limiting your, your range of motion when you do that? Or you're, actually you're doing two things. Tension? You're doing three things. One, you're working against the natural function of how a shoulder actually works. Two your limiting elevation, and then three, you are antagonizing your rotator cuff muscles, especially the infraspinatus, which is the one that is, or supraspinatus, I'm forgetting which one, supraspinatus, supraspinatus. So you're agitating that, okay? Because your fire will tend to fire the wrong muscles to quote unquote pull the shoulder blade down. We'll tend to fire the lats. And the, the rotator cuff muscles have no fighting chance against the lats. Hmm. And so it has a increased potential for rotator cuff strain by firing the wrong muscles with that elevation. Oh, I see. Yeah, so you could actually really strain one of your rotator cuff muscles. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think in modern vinyasa yoga, you know, I think that anyone that has shoulder pain tends to associate it with chaturanga. And oftentimes chaturangas can be problematic. Mm -hmm. Chaturanga is not problematic inherently, but the way it's done is often problematic. 
But total conjecture on my part, totally unscientific, unmeasured, and anything. I also think it's this misunderstood idea of arm elevation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That people are stressing part of the shoulder cuff out big time by misunderstanding the rotational nature of the scapula. But Chaturanga, the arms are 90, so it's not... Chaturanga is a different scenario. In Chaturanga, you should be pulling the shoulder blades okay. up. What I guess okay. what I I, get th- I guess I wasn't clear on that. What I'm trying to say is that people that do vinyasa yoga and have, as a result of vinyasa yoga, have some discomforts in their shoulders, always think it's the only issue is Chaturanga. What I'm saying oh, is, I, see, I, I see. think a very common reason that people have some shoulder discomfort is not knowing what to do when the arms go overhead. Yeah. And it's a misunderstanding of this shoulder blades down because when the shoulders, when the arms are not elevating above 90 degrees, pull the shoulder blades down. When they are, that that doesn't hold sway. It doesn't, it's not mechanically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a really good segue because the last question we're going to do for today is um, the third question is also an anatomy question, and it's about Bring the it shoulders up. in Chaturanga. Shoulders in Chaturanga. Mm-hmm. Still Life Yoga with Sean wants to know. Still I, Life Yoga I with Sean. Hey, Sean. I love people's Instagram <laughs> yeah, names, yeah, 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 yeah. by the way. I love Instagram names that have cat in them, like okay. cat feelings or, you know. This is two times we've mentioned cats, so let's, let's push on. <laughs> I need a cat. Okay. No. Still Life Yoga with Sean. Hi, Jason. I have a question. When doing plank, do you recommend pushing strongly through the shoulders and upper back or soft shoulders so that the shoulder blades protrude up toward the ceiling? Not that one. Not up toward the ceiling. Not up towards the ceiling. So... Just again, without a model, without seeing some of the stuff, it can be tough. But I think that I think that our listeners can can sort this out. And if not, we'll be done soon, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's the bottom line: in plank, start with the idea of pushing the floor away, not leaning into the floor. Does that make sense? So everyone say that you're in plank, and then. And you know, if you're if you're listening to this not in your car or whatever, you can sort of play with this. You can come into plank. And while you're in plank, push the floor away. Like actively from your upper back, from your arms, from your hands, from your legs, from the ball of the feet, push the floor away. Like you're trying to stick the mat very firmly to the ground. And then feel what that feels like in terms of the quality of the tone. And and then think about the word plank. Like plank. It's a plank. That's a very firm object. Then do the opposite, which is keep the arms and legs straight, but let the weight of the body sink into the arms and sink into the legs and sink into the flooring. So in the first situation, you're pressing the floor away from you. In the second scenario, you're allowing the weight of the body to yield downwards slightly. Right. It's almost like the chest is going closer to the floor. The chest is going a little bit closer to the floor. Now, the former, so the pressing of the floor away is going to bring a more even and balanced tone throughout the body. And it's going to fire the muscles in a more appropriate way. Now, we don't want to fire up all the muscles intensely in all poses, but plank is a pose where you're firing everything up. Like that's the essence of the pose. You're a plank. Now, taking it even more to the shoulders, really what we can say with this situation, and, and, and 
I'll try and define these terms a little bit more. But another is Sean, right? Mm-hmm. Another question, not that not another question, but another way of thinking about the question that Sean's asking is, are you protracting the scapula or are you retracting the scapula? Are you broadening the upper back? Are you broadening the shoulders blades away from each other? Or are you dropping the chest a little bit, allowing the shoulder blades to move slightly towards each other, and then creating that little hollowness between the scapula, Mm -hmm. okay? You want to broaden the shoulder blades, so you want to protract the shoulder blades. You do not want to narrow the shoulder blades. You do not want to retract them. Mm -hmm. And the main reason that this is, chaturanga is different, but we're talking plank. The main reason that this is, is that when you broaden the shoulder blades, you get more of a stabilizing force from the scapular connection to the ribs. So you fire up, when you broaden the shoulder blades, you fire up the muscles on the outer borders of the shoulder blade, the serratus anterior, as well as the muscles on the inner border of the shoulder blade. It is a more complete way of engaging the shoulder girdle. Mm -hmm. to broaden the shoulder blades and push the floor away as opposed to let the chest sink and draw the shoulder blades towards each other. Now, I'm going to tell everyone one thing that they're going to have to troubleshoot. Broadening the shoulder blades is different than rounding the back towards the ceiling. So you want to broaden the shoulder blades, but you don't want to inadvertently do cat pose. Mm -hmm. Third time we've said cat. Fourth (laughs) time because I just said cat. Fifth time. But okay, so point is, We want to learn how to broaden the shoulder blades while pushing the floor away in plank without rounding the back towards the ceiling. Mm -hmm. So in order to do this, you have to sort of focus on keeping the chest broad Mm -hmm. as you push the arms away from you. Yeah. As opposed to sort of hollowing the chest and taking the breastbone, the sternum towards the spine. Because you don't want to increase kyphosis. You don't, in plank, you don't want to increase the the roundness or the curve of the upper back. Right. I would imagine that doing it that way, when you mentioned like the muscles along the ribs firing up, that you, um, for people who have wrist pain, I'm one of them, hand pain, I'm starting to become one of them, which is a real bummer, that that would take some of the pressure off of those joints. I don't know if it would take some of the pressure off of the joints. But I know the opposite, which is not doing that would increase the pressure. The sinking. So I think you're right. I think you're right. But certainly sinking Mm -hmm. is going to put more load on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the nature of lowering to chaturanga, when you lower to chaturanga, the scapula will retract. The scapula will move towards the midline. They can't, you literally can't move towards chaturanga without the shoulder blades then re-narrowing. But, that's, but the shoulder blades are going to naturally do that in the transition from plank to chaturanga. There's a style of yoga that teaches in plank to sort of preset the position of the shoulder blades for chaturanga in plank by bringing the shoulder blades towards each other. I understand that logic, but I don't agree with the outcome. And I think that it's unnecessary. I, I would treat plank as plank, Scapula broad, push the floor away, fire up the serratus anterior. And then in the transition from plank to chaturanga, the shoulder blades are going to start to come in. I don't don't believe they need to be preset. I think that you're working against the natural function of the shoulders by 
putting the shoulder blades in an undesirable position in one pose just to preempt the next pose mm-hmm. because they're yeah. going to get there anyways. Yeah, yeah, you can move your shoulders from pose to pose. Yeah, yeah. They, and they, in some ways they actually can't not. Yeah. They can not, but yeah, you get the point. It's unnecessary. Okay, well, that is it. Do you have- One quick plug. Mm-hmm. Our site has a bunch of stuff about Chaturanga. We have a four-part Chaturanga series. So we have a bunch of stuff about Chaturanga and... I know Chaturanga is not the only thing that we talked about, but one of the things that we do in that Chaturanga series on our site, jasonyoga.com, is there's a little bit of shoulder anatomy. There's a little bit of shoulder anatomy and some illustrations. So if people are unclear about upper arm and scapula, it's nice to have a visual reference for some of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I will put um, links to those posts as well as links to some shoulder sequences that we have on the show notes page. So as Jason mentioned, I'll put links to the Chaturanga series. It's a whole series of blog posts on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 23. We also have several shoulder related sequences, a brand new one. um, That's a great like daily maintenance for your shoulders, neck and upper back. We have a prep sequence for shoulder stand and a prep sequence for forearm balance. And I'm going to dig around. I'm sure we have a few more sequences as well. So I'll put links to all of those on the show notes page. And if you sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of those pages, if you sign up for our newsletter, we will send you a PDF download of the sequence that you can print out and put next to your mat or you can put on your iPad. It's like perfect size for an iPad so you can have it with you while you practice. We are headed on retreat and to a short family vacation. So I'm going to take next week off from the podcast, but we'll be back the week after that. You can go back to the archives and listen to some old episodes if you haven't listened to them all yet. I highly recommend it. Take care, everyone. Enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.